0: welcome back to over the top a great war podcast this is going to be episode 34 the italian front part 3 for 1915 and the final part for this series so i've actually had this episode scripted out for several weeks now i'm just now getting the opportunity to sit down and record this and i can't tell you how good it feels to plug my microphone into my audio interface, it's kind of like the <sighs> moment. I I love doing this, and my my life's just been a little chaotic lately. So, pretty sure you've recognized how long it's taken to get this episode out from the last one. And uh, as always, I do apologize, but um, yeah, I'm like any normal person. I live a very busy life that I'm trying to get a get control of it. So anyways, I'm doing my best, but let me get on. On the last episode, I covered the skirmishes leading up to the first battle of the Isonzo, the failures of Italian leadership that resulted in some missed opportunities, actually some pretty big missed opportunities, and then the actual first battle of Isonzo. I also went off the beaten path regarding leadership and how it affected the Great War. Bad leadership in particular. And I'm not saying it's the theme of this podcast, because it's not, I'm simply telling the history of the Great War as best as I can. But I think by now you can see the big picture of how bad leadership caused the outbreak of the war. It was the cause of way too many deaths, even up to this point, and it will get even worse. So this podcast isn't per se about leadership and I'm just saying per se in the spirit fingers, those finger quotes. The fact is you can't talk about the history of the great war without talking about bad leadership because they go hand in hand. So I'm going back to when I heard Jocko Willock talk about leadership and I'm not a promoter of a show. He doesn't need help in that department. He's quite successful, but he just happened to have a guest on that I really wanted to hear. So when he opened up, it struck a bell. It was so spot on. And again, egotism and sociopaths have a scary close relationship. Sociopath in the sense of lacking conscience or consideration for others. One who makes decisions based on his or her best interests with lack or regard for others. I kick myself for not saving an article that I read not too long ago about how a lot of corporate leadership displays significant signs of being sociopaths. And almost always it stems from them having big egos. And I say that because, you know, who's really running our world today? It's major corporations. And I'm not saying all corporations are bad. I'm not. There really are some good ones, but you take into consideration like, and Ron, some of those hedge funds that ran off with people's retirement. You know, there's some really, really bad ones that are actually running the world. <clears throat> I'm just trying to point out the relationship between egotism, sociopaths, and bad relation, Bad relations. <laughs> bad relationships, maybe that is, and bad leadership. Generals like Cadorna, which I'll continue my research with. Joseph Joffre, Admiral Winston Churchill, politicians like Salandra. I mean, every nation had them, every single one. So for men like this, they would rather see everyone die than to admit their plan is the wrong one. They didn't do well with taking advice from others. They made decisions with little to no regard for the lives at stake. And that's really the reason why so many people died between 1914 and 1918. It was from bad leadership. And that's what I talked about on the last episode. So far, the Italians made zero gains. They lost some opportunities that would have put some of the armies in much better offensive positions. They've been getting hammered by artillery and machine guns. And some of the terrain like at the Carso they found wasn't the most suitable place for trench warfare. And that's going to bring us into the second battle of the Asanzo. Uh, I don't have any updates for this episode. And uh, I'm actually drinking coffee, iced coffee to be particular. My uh, Invader Coffee Mexican chocolate blend. I love this stuff. Again, I'm not part of the company. I wish I was, but I just love the stuff. So I love to tell everybody invadercoffee.com. Yeah. So I have to be somewhere after I record this show. So coffee for tonight. And uh, let's get this thing started. Do you know what the word irredentism means? In political terms, it's the reclaiming of lost territory, which is thought to be rightfully theirs. The official definition is a policy of advocating the restoration to a country of any territory formerly belonging to it. In other words, with Italy signing the Treaty of London, giving Italy expansions in the Balkans, the Eastern Mediterranean, and Asia Minor, this is what most believe they were doing. Irredentism is what the soldiers were told by officers. The 110-year-old veteran Carlo Aureli, who I spoke about in the last episode, When he was asked by the author, Mark Thompson, what he believed he was fighting for, Orelli replied with, why Trento and Trieste? But it was a lot more complicated than that on the political spectrum, given the fact that Italy Italy was kind of forced into this. I said Italy. Italy. Can't even pronounce Italy right now. It's the coffee kicking in. I bring this up because that word, irredentism, supports the theory that Italy was supposedly bringing the nation together by fighting for and gaining the lost areas, reclaiming the lost Italians back as one. I guess that could be a motivating factor if you look at it like that. But here lies the problem that Italy experienced very early on. Most of these lands that they were trying to reclaim, the majority of the people weren't even Italian. And because of this, they weren't so much as welcoming, kind of turning this whole irredentism into horseshit. But it's important to understand, this was the reason why most of the Italians believed they were fighting, which is really what will instill that drive to keep pushing forward. I know it's complicated. This whole thing from the start is just one big political soup sandwich. On July 18th, Cadorna gave the orders to start the attack kicking off the second battle of the Asanzo. The main objective was Mount Saint Michel at the northern tip of the Carso, which the infantry attack was to take place on a hot afternoon at 1300 hours. The Italians opened up that day with an artillery bombardment at 0400 hours, but instead of aiming for the rear, Cadorna decided it would be wiser to use the less powerful guns at a shorter range. But in reality, They didn't even have big enough guns to pound the rear, so they concentrated the fire just on the Austrian front lines. This actually took the Austrians by surprise. But the problem was, because of the delays after the first battle, the Austrians had time to fortify their positions. The Habsburg soldiers dug deep underground shelters, which did a pretty good job by keeping the soldiers safe from the bombardment. The battle kicked off. The Italians were fighting furiously and actually made good progress. By July 20th, they were nearing the hilltop of San Michele. That is until they came upon a well in place machine gun positions at the higher ground. The guns opened up as the Italians neared the top and just mowed them down like overgrown grass. Bodies were dropping and rolling down the hill. The machine guns were causing major chaos. But here's where that Italian fighting spirit came into play. They kept pushing and pushing forward even after losing some ground. In a way, it was kind of like stubbornness, but things were about to get really bloody and downright gory. At dawn on the 21st of July, the Italians opened up with another bombardment. It lasted for a couple hours. Once the guns lifted, they clashed head-on with the Bosnian regiment, which turned into hand-to-hand fighting. The Italians were introduced to the studded mace. If you don't know what that is, a studded mace is basically a wooden club with some sort of sharp studs at the end, which would obviously be the end they would be clubbing the skull with. The studs could be nails or anything sharp enough to penetrate or crack the skull open. They really got creative with these clubs. Some German maces had a metal ball and a, on a chain with sharp metal spikes at the end. This was like medieval shit going down. It was brutal. Men were getting their heads beaten in until the skull cracked wide open like a melon. There were soldiers sprawled out dead all over the limestone with their brains just spilling out. There was blood and gore everywhere. They didn't only use maces, they used bayonets, buttstocks, knives, anything they could get their hands on to bash the enemy to death. Eventually, the Italians pulled back after taking heavy losses. The Sassari Brigade alone took 2,400 casualties. They would regroup and take the hill twice on the 26th, but weren't able to hold the position. In the book, The White War by Mark Thompson, the author retells the story of an Italian veteran who was south of San Michel at Mount Kosich. The man was crouched behind a stone parapet looking through his binoculars at the men crawling on their hands and knees moving up. Sadly, this was a relief for him. Watching this distracted him from the horrible stench of feces, unburied corpses, and sulfur. See, around these parts of the Carso in July, the temperatures get brutally hot, turning the stone into ovens think about what that's doing to the dead bodies and the human waste here's the thing about a dead body just left in a situation like this to decompose and keep in mind how the heat is making this worse first stage autolysis better known as self-digestion the destruction of cells and tissue by their own enzymes this begins immediately after death when blood circulation and respiration stop. This is when rigor mortis will start to set in. Second stage, bloating. Leaked enzymes from the first stage begin to produce gases. The sulfur compounds that the bacteria release also cause skin discoloration due to the gases. The body can double in size. In addition, insect and rodent activity will often be present. The bacteria produced causes an extremely unpleasant odor called putrefaction the odor is said to linger long even when a body has been removed third stage decaying fluids released through orifices indicate active decay organs muscles and skin become liquefied it becomes all gooey and jelly like the body loses most of its mass during this stage and the fourth stage this is the final stage, which is skeletonization. And there's really no set time frame when this occurs. And honestly, if you have to live with both bodies decomposing, one through three, who gives a shit about four? It normally takes around a month for a body to get all gooey and start liquefying. However, again, take into consideration the blistering heat, and this can speed things up. And this was happening all around the soldiers. They weren't burying the bodies. Then you add in the men defecating where they were sleeping and fighting. Just picture the environment the men were living and fighting in. So for the soldier who's peering down the binoculars, watching the action going down, it was taking his mind off the stench that surrounded him. And a lot of the soldiers were killed in these makeshift trenches. In the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness, the living would swing the dead and fling them out as far as they could, or even down a hill or mountain. There were snipers everywhere, so I'm sure this was done in a hasty manner. And remember, the armies then consisted of towns forming units. Fathers would go off with their sons, or brothers would go off together. Imagine tossing a loved one over the side of a cliff because you don't want to see or smell that person rot away. That was his burial. Or even worse, imagine watching a loved one decompose. People didn't mentally come back from that. This, along with the constant artillery, was having a major psychological effect on the men. Some were really losing their mind. In fact, there was an increase in psychotic murders after the Great War, and it's due to the fact that the war had created a lot of mental ill individuals. Obviously, brutal murders did exist before the war, But this definitely did play a part in the increase. It's sad because there was no support system back then. In fact, support systems didn't really start until the later part of the 20th century. Back then, the men were just expected to go on with their lives, go back to the farm or factory and pretend like nothing happened. It's very sad. And honestly, it would have taken a very extensive support system to help these men, Who experienced such horrors? But let me get back on track. The man behind the binos was watching the advancement on Mount Kosich. This was the current objective. The men felt the earth begin to rumble as the artillery started to come alive. Men recall seeing shrapnel bursting overhead, then more explosions on the ground. Men were seen being thrown and ripped apart in the air. This caused terrible losses on the Italian side, and by the 24th of July, the 3rd Army suspended their attacks. They would begin to move further south of Monfalcone in the wetlands. Further north around Gorizia, attacks were repelled by machine gun emplacements. No ground was gained. At the Carso, the temperature was becoming hell to the men on both sides. The sun was just beating down on them. An Austrian officer recalls this, saying, Baking the leaves on the trees to a dark crisp until they crackle on the branch. It blanches the grass until it shatters at the touch, like the thinnest blown glass. In the glare, the trees look black. Beyond, the sea steams. Or gleams like steel. Rocks split. Sounds carry far louder and faster. It is as if the sun's rays were multiplied by millions of mirrors, tormenting the soldier's eyes. There is no escaping the heat. Tongues swell, coated with thick saliva. Fingers swell and dangle clumsily from sticky hands. Eyes inflamed, skin like parchment. The blinding light beams everywhere, penetrating our eyelids. Our flasks are empty, sucked dry by the early morning. End quote. The Carso had turned into hell on earth. The wounded laid on the ground, trying not to move or brush the flies away, out of fear they would be spotted and targeted by a machine gunner or sniper. There was dead and wounded spread out everywhere. Trees had been shredded apart by the shells. In some areas, the forest literally disappeared. The natural potholes from the limestone blended in with the shell holes. There was unexploded munitions everywhere. And of course, the men continually walked over the dead bodies and feces. Night brought no rest. This is when the men worked to improve trenches with rock drills and fix what was destroyed along with laying wire. Mules were rotated at night, bringing up supplies. Night was also the only time the men could try and retrieve the wounded. This natural wonder of the world, called the Carso, was turned into hell. Maybe the devil really was still residing there. Now, let me change directions to the northern Isanzo, where the weather was opposite from the south. Here, it was bitterly cold. Above Caporetto, at a height of around 2,000 meters, the air is thinner and colder. At altitudes like this, it's harder to breathe, especially if you're exerting yourself. Athletes will often train in the mountains to build up their lungs. The former boxer Oscar De La Hoya used to train in the mountains of Southern California for this reason, just like many others did. Probably still do today. But if I was an alpinist at the Italian front, I probably wouldn't be putting much attention to the thin air as I would the cold air. An Italian soldier recalls being hunkered down in the evening with fellow soldiers along the side of a mountain shivering uncontrollably. This was hell is what he was thinking. He was an alpinist at Mount Kern in Mersley. The goat paths they were hunkered down at were narrow. One wrong step and a person go over the edge. Freezing cold with war surrounding him. He described it saying squatting among our own and enemy corpses. The stench was unbearable. And on top of that, we had to withstand a furious enemy assault and we repelled it. Many of our men fell hit in the head while they poked out of the trench to fire. The constant stream of bombs also caused some casualties. These are steel cylinders about 30 centimeters long that the Austrians throw at us with special equipment from up to 300 meters away. Their effect is horrific. A poor alpino lost his legs and his stomach ripped out. In daytime, you can see the bombs coming and dodge them, but at night, it's serious stuff. Those steel cylinders that the soldier was referring to were trench mortars. These, along with artillery, would cause deadly rockfalls. One particular instance, an artillery caused a cliff to collapse and 20 men were swept into the abyss. The weather here was extreme in other ways. There was lightning storms, freezing winds, hailstorms, a lot of rain, men were constantly being taken off the mountain with frostbite ranging from their head to toes on the 14th of august the italians launched an offensive at the upper isanzo at 300 hours the artillery opened up while the men crawled towards the austrian line they would get around 200 meters from the front line then huddle together for warmth without the sun the cold was becoming unbearable but as the sun rose a bigger problem also rose. They became visible to the Austrian gunners. Immediately, the Habsburg soldiers opened up on them. Shrapnel was being sent in all directions. All the men could do was cling to the face of the rock for several hours while the wire-cutting parties created paths. At 1215, the artillery fell silent and the men from the 3rd Company, 21st Burglossieri Battalion began their assault at 1235 they rushed up and reached the wire, only to find that it had not been eliminated. Imagine that, they're freezing their asses off all night into the early morning, they start getting shelled, and then as they begin their assault, to put salt on the wound, the wire hasn't been cut. Out of desperation, the men tried to pin it down, but that was useless. The soldiers began to stack up in mass at the wire, which only created a large target for the Austrian machine gunners. The men were dropping like flies, getting torn apart. Nearly all the senior officers had been been killed. The men had been caught in a crossfire. The survivors were forced to lay as low as possible, almost trying to blend in with the mud until nightfall. It had begun to rain and the men laid shivering, trying to hide from not being spotted. Some finally made it down the hill when the darkness came, stumbling and crawling over dead bodies as they made their way down. Only around 50 men made it out alive from the whole battalion. The 21st had nearly been wiped out. On the 19th, the Italians managed to seize a big trench line at Mersley, but the Austrians being good at counterattacks, counter attacks, took it back. A Bosnian battalion on the 29th had won it back. Also on the 29th of August, the 2nd Army attempted to capture Mount Rambon after later securing Flitch, but they ended up being pinned down by the Habsburg's 2nd Mountain Rifles. The Italians had no choice but to press forward. When they went up to the steep ridge, they stood no chance. By the beginning of September, the survivors retreated back to the valley's bottom. The 2nd Battle of the Asanzo was a bloodbath, costing 42,000 Italian casualties and 47,000 for the Habsburg side. And to make matters worse, the Austrians had brought over cholera from the Russian front. And by mid-August, it was spreading like wildfire. Cholera is an infectious and back then often fatal bacterial disease of the small intestine causing severe vomiting and diarrhea. It's usually spread through contaminated water or by eating the food or drinking the water from a person who's been infected. A lot of nasty stuff taking place in those trousers, if you know what I mean. After the second battle of the Asanzo came to a halt, Cadorna realized his army lacked significantly in resources to make any sort of gains. Resources like heavy artillery and machine guns. And because of this, he wasn't exactly in a rush to kick off the third battle. The Italians' tactics was much like that of the Allies on the Western Front. In theory, commanders wanted to bombard the Austrian front line trenches, which in hopes would eliminate a good portion of the soldiers and barbed wire. Then, as their men advanced, they would shift fire to the rear of the Austrian line in order to prevent reinforcements from moving in on top of catching the men retreating. Sort of boxing them in. Problem is, they didn't have big enough guns to support this. The majority of their artillery was still coming from 75mm cannons, and although this was good for the French at the western front, this was crap in an alpine setting. And the Austrians just overall had bigger and better guns. There was a lot happening at this time when the second battle ceased. Cadorna's relationship with Solange was going bad. Politicians were pressuring Solandra to get this over with quick. And Cadorna was telling Solandra, ain't going to happen. This is going to take a long time. The citizens were becoming angry because mass graves were filling up at at the battlefields and filling up quick. It was also at this time the Western Front came to a slow sort of simmer pace. And the allies like Great Britain and France were putting pressure on Italy to relieve the strain on Serbia who were hanging by a thread. Bulgaria entered the war in September on the side of the Central Powers, which didn't help the situation. The Dardanelles is a whole nother story, but needless to say, they weren't about to give up any troops from there yet. And the Italians had more tactical problems. They lacked in explosives and rock drills, which means they still lacked in trenches. The Austrians, on the other hand, were creating quite the trench lines. Most of the trenches along the Isonzo had three lines, a front line, a support line, and a reserve line, all linked together by communication lines, and they were dug deep. When the Italians shelled the front line, the Austrians for the most part weren't even occupying that line. They were hunkered deep in the support trench. Then, when the shelling stopped, they just got up and made their way back to the front and unleashed their guns, well, back in the rear, along with machine guns. I think you can see where the problem lies. Regardless of all the tactical issues and political BS, on October 18th, Cadorna believed he had enough artillery and shells to commence a third battle. The second army prepared to attack Tolmain and Plava, along with the higher grounds of Padgora and Sabatino. The third army prepared to attack Mount St. Michel. Wait, wait, just a minute. I forgot to mention something. The Austrians knew the attack was coming. That's right. With the help from loose-lipped Italian deserters who didn't hesitate to tell all, the Austrians knew the attack was coming and were well prepared. 1,300 Italian cannons began shelling along a 50-kilometer front from Kern to the sea on October 18th. It was loud. It was thunderous. There was a lot of booms, and I'm sure it was quite the show. However, remember, the majority of those guns firing were 75 millimeters. This wasn't big enough for the job, and that was a problem that kept resurfacing for the Italians. So when the Italianos got out of their trenches and then made their way to the Austrian front lines... They were very rudely greeted by a hailstorm of Austrian bullets, like a never-ending swarm of deadly hornets. I don't need to get gruesome on this part because I think your imagination alone can tell you many men were slaughtered that day, ripped to pieces. But remember how I said the Italians were hard-charging and not going out without a fight? It was because of this, the fighting spirit, they made a few gains along certain parts of the Asanzo. The Salerno Brigade managed to take the big trench at Mersley on the 24th. This came from men fixing bayonets and charging the enemy head on resulting in hand to hand combat. Losses were extremely high but ground was gained. They were driven back and forth a couple times but past Mersley no gains were made and the advance was stopped. There wasn't a big enough breakthrough at Mersey to call it a victory. Over at the Carso, it was similar. The Italians pushed forward, then were pushed back. This was repeated several times, and each time the Italians thought they were making a gain, they were stopped in their tracks by wire. The Siena Brigade's job in the third battle was to take the line at Cebusi. They began their attack on the 23rd of October. It was bloody. They paid the cost by losing a great amount of soldiers. So much that the Austrians called for an hour's ceasefire to collect the dead and wounded. Shortly after the Siena Brigade was relieved by the Bersaglieri Regiment and the Sassari Brigade. Together, by early November, they managed to take the trench lines at Sebusi and hold it. They finally gained some ground and were able to hold it. The last days of the Third Battle of the Isonzo were on the third and fourth of November, and it was a bloodbath. The deaths were so high that there was fear among the higher-ranking officers of soldiers deserting the battlefield. The Italians had lost over sixty-five thousand men. South of Montfalcone. One division, the 16th, attacked Hill 121, which was nearest hill to Trieste. This one single attack by the 16th division cost 4,000 soldiers. 4,000 soldiers. Again, I want you to think back about the dead rotting on the field of battle. Thousands upon thousands of bodies will morph into a gruesome sight. And they did attempt to get the wounded and dead, but still... They were just creating piles. But it was rare at this point that they were even able to collect the dead. There was too much risk involved. When the Austrians called for the hour ceasefire, this was a very rare case. The third battle of the Isonzo was called to a halt the evening of November 4th but Cadorna was convinced that the Austrians were at a breaking point and felt even more optimistic about beating the Habsburgs, knowing 24 new battalions were due to arrive within days and felt Gorizia was nearly in his hands. After one week, the fourth battle of the Isonzo kicked off in fuller swing. The Italians outnumbered the Austrians almost three to one, but because the Habsburg soldiers were better equipped with machine guns, they were able to repel the majority of the attacks. Just like the third battle, the dead again began to pile up. The Italian soldiers were desperate. They weren't getting fed properly. The food that did make it to the lines was cold and there was very little of it. It was hard for them to replenish their strength with little to no food and even water. Some of the troops were going for several days without even the bare minimum. They were so desperate that the men would begin to harm themselves to get Medevac from the front. You'll have to have to get creative and imagine what that could have been. Officers began to look out for soldiers with self-inflicted wounds. This was punishable by way of execution. This was a terrible time for the troops. I mean, the whole damn thing was terrible for them since day one until the last day of the war. But they were at an extremely low point. Before, they had the spirit for Trento for Trieste. Now they were starving, thirsty. Sanitation was horrendous and their fellow soldiers were dying by the thousands. The situation will bring most people down. Thoughts of desertion, self-inflicting wounds, and even suicide was at an all-time high. They wanted to escape the horrors of this war. On November 18th, Cadorna turned another dark stone. Before this, he was opposed to targeting civilian towns because, well, civilians were there. But on this day, he ordered a three hour bombardment on the city of Gorizia. The writer Mark Thompson described Gorizia as the Austrian Nice, the city of roses and violets, mild climate in the winter, with hills behind and the turquoise isonzo in front. It flourished under the Habsburgs. Long avenues lined the villas, public gardens with a picturesque medieval castle. The city was filled with wealthy Viennese and Bavarians. Cadorna shelled the shit out of it. He turned the city into rubble and left almost no trace of the forest that surrounded it. The city became another ruined city from the war, that they would have to rebuild. Cadorna really offered no solid answer why he shelled the city. He supposedly had a private meeting in which he did say that it was more political than strategic. He knew once the shelling started that he couldn't take the city. And oddly enough, around this time, Joffre had visited this front and might have been the reason for the change of heart in Cadorna. Joffre was not the type of man to spare a city like Gorizia. Anywho, the situation was similar to the third battle. They pushed, but failed losses were high. And finally, due to heavy snowfall, the first week of December, the fourth battle died out. The Italians added another 49,000 casualties to their list. The Austrians 42,000 for the fourth battle and the winters are so harsh that the corpses wouldn't begin to thaw out until the spring of 1916. Until then, they just became the frozen dead. And in a nutshell, this was the Italian front for 1915 with the first four battles of the Isonzo. I won't be talking about this front again until I start 1916, which actually isn't too far away. This was an extremely bloody front. There's a podcast out there. It's a podcast, it's a podcast, but it's more like an audio book or it should be. If you're a fan of history, there's a good chance you might have heard of it. It's called Hardcore History Blueprint for Armageddon by Dan Carlin. He covers the entire war and it's an absolutely amazing series. I believe it's a six part series if I remember it. And by the way, he has a series on the Second World War Eastern Front uh, called Ghost of the Alst Front of Stalingrad, which I thought was even better. But, but let me stay on topic. Blueprint for Armageddon is outstanding. When Carlin gets to the Battle of Verdun, he opens it with something along the lines of there's certain times in history where you wouldn't want to be. Verdun was one of those places or something close to that. It's It's been some time since I heard it. And Carlin's right. Verdun was hell on earth, no doubt. Could possibly be one of the worst places to be in history. It was that bad. But there was other places during the great war that were just, I'm not gonna say equally, but they were pretty damn bad. The Italian front was one of those. If I had to take my pick, Yeah, for sure, Verdun is a hell no. I'm making sure the DeLorean time machine doesn't stop there. But the Italian front, yeah, that was pretty bad. The weather conditions, the frigid temperatures and all the dead piling up, the Italian front was no joke. It's definitely a big hitter. A lot of mistakes were made mistakes by higher-ups that cost hundreds of thousands of lives in 1915. And it wasn't only the Italians, the Austrian losses were also appalling. I'm glad I took my time with this one. I learned a lot of details regarding this front that I never knew. Cadorna, the limestones of the Carso, and much more. I hope you enjoy this series as much as I did. Again, I want to give a plug to the book, which was my main reading for this front so far, and it's called The White War by Mark Thompson. I've read several books that cover the Italian front, and I I think this one is the best I've read. His knowledge and details of the front is impeccable. If you like what you've heard, I recommend you get this book. And uh, again, I want to touch base on why it took so long to get this episode out. There's a lot of things going on. Um, In school right now, I'm actually going after two things. I'm getting a certification in a fire inspector and a certification in an engineering. However, I'm contemplating turning that certification into another degree, which would make it my second degree. There's a lot going on in the head. I I think you can hear. So, again, I do apologize. It's taking some time. But uh, my semester is actually nearing an end. I'm like on the home stretch. And when I'm done, I'm going to start cranking these out because it's summertime and back to my readings and back to pumping out those podcasts and the next episode is actually going to be a good one and i like they all haven't been hopefully (laughs) hopefully you guys have liked every one so far but uh the next episode is actually going to be a biography got the book right here been reading it it's a tremendously great story i think you're really going to enjoy it i'm not going to give it away but uh stay tuned for next episode for a biography episode All right, folks, that's going to be it. Thank you for listening and for your continued support. I hope everyone is in good spirits and good health. Until the next episode, take care, everyone.